You're listening to The Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Perch Pod. As usual, I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm your host. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Now, before we dive into this week's conversation, I just wanted to say a word about why we say that we are a human-centric business and political consulting firm. The simple reason is this. I think that political and business consulting has forgotten that the reason that we analyze economic data or try to understand political risk or analyze security relationships or security environments is because it's all about human individuals. It's all about what people do. I have found that to really understand what's happening in the global environment to mitigate risk and also to identify opportunities You have to be able to combine the high altitude, 50,000 foot view of what's going on with a really profound empathetic sense of what individuals are doing and why individuals are doing it. That's why we put humans at the middle of everything that we do. Uh, We absolutely believe that you have to deal with abstract forces and rigorously account for quantitative data. But if you can't combine that with an equally rigorous application of qualitative analysis, if you can't understand why individuals are doing what they're doing or what a given piece of information means at a very practical level, you're actually not going to have the insights you need. So I just wanted to say that little bit about about why we put humans at the center of our business. And that leads fairly well into introducing this week's podcast guest, my good friend, John Minnick, because he's a perfect person to have the sort of conversation with. John is a PhD student at MIT in government. Uh, he's looking at Chinese foreign policy and especially U.S.-China relations. John and I go way back. We were roommates back in college at Cornell University, lived in the same room in Telluride House for a year. And not only is John one of the smartest people that I know, but I think he's one of the most perceptive people studying China today and out there talking about China's role in the world and what China's future looks like. So we super appreciate John for coming on the show. I will absolutely twist his arm as many times as I possibly can to get him on here just because I love talking to him and I think he's got a lot of insights to share. Um, In the meantime, you can always check us out at perchperspectives.com. Please spread the word about the podcast and our free newsletter and, of course, about the services that we're able to offer businesses. Um, That's all for me. Now on to the conversation. We will see you out there. John. You uh, you sent me your prospectus. It's a brave thing to send a friend <laughs> a prospectus, and certainly one that you've had as many intellectual arguments as you've had with me. Um, but I'm I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. I thought it was great. I've actually already been using it in conversations with with clients and other folks. Um, but before we kind of get into some of what you're looking at, so for listeners and maybe John, well, actually let's let's start there. John, like what what are you looking at right now in your graduate studies? Like what is taking up most of your time, and what are you focused on? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, Jacob, thanks for having me on here. I really appreciate it. And I'm, I look forward to talking to you about this stuff. And I'm always happy to share my perspectives. I, I'm never shy about uh, you know, <laughs> sending, sending works in progress to you. Um, I, I mean, basically, you know, my, my kind of broad research interests are, so I, I study political science. Um, my subfields are international relations with sort of a general focus on international political economy. Um, and, you know, I've been studying China for the past 12 years now. Um, and that's, that's been, you know, that's what I was doing when I was working before and, and it's still my kind of broad academic focus. So I'm very interested in Chinese foreign policy and what I really, you know, on a background level, I want to understand, um, basically how U.S. China relations got to be where they are. Um, and I think 
to do that, you know, a big component of that is, well, one, understanding the evolution of, well, understanding Chinese economic rise, the kind of institutional and political determinants of Chinese economic rise, but then also understanding how China's growth uh, and also Chinese behavior, Chinese policy choices have sort of have had ripple effects on American foreign policy, American national interest, and sort of tracing this process by which, you know, what I think at one point seemed like and could have been and actually was a fairly cooperative relationship. uh, We've seen really within this relationship tensions escalate over the past decade. And I want to try to kind of dig in and see who the key actors that drove that process were. So right now, uh, I'm looking at, you know, my, my dissertation tries to answer the question of why China engages in protectionism, um, why it resists economic integration, uh, in particular kind of external pressure, American demands for greater market openness and greater market integration. And secondarily to kind of try to explain variation in the kinds of protectionist tools China uses across industries and over time. So sometimes you see China use what I call transparent protectionist tools. And these would be tariffs or other kinds of um, sort of at the border barriers to trade, tariffs, import quotas, um, certain kinds of non-tariff barriers, or very direct legal prohibitions on inbound foreign investment. Uh, so that's the transparent barriers. But then a lot of what we see is, especially over the past decade, China has increasingly used these um, less transparent, what we could call sort of disguised or veiled forms of protection. And there's a lot of variation across industries and, and the kinds of tools that China uses. So I want to just explore, you know, why in some industries does China use some kinds of protectionist tools and in other industries, other kinds of protectionist tools. And my basic argument is that it has a lot to do with um, external and in particular American demand for greater openness and how that interacts with certain kinds of Chinese policy goals within China. Yeah, that's perfect to situate it. And I think before we can really dive into um, sort of current U.S.-China trade relations and what the future looks like. I think that um, we kind of need to situate ourselves in general, sort of where U.S.-China relations have come from and, and how we got to this particular point. So, if you were going to pinpoint where you want to begin the story of telling the story of U.S.-China economic relations, what what's the first chapter? Like, do you have to begin that with the Opium Wars? Does it begin with um, kind of you know the end of the Qing Dynasty, like what is the first chapter of America's involvement with China that we need to take into account to understand how we got to the current environment? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, I I do think that um, the kind of deeper history going back into the 19th century is is always relevant. And I think in this case, it's really relevant for understanding, you know, there's this concept of the century of humiliation, um, which for listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with China, uh, just to kind of briefly summarize it, it's this idea that you know China up until the middle of the 19th century had this self-conception um, as being you know the actual the Chinese term for China, Zhongguo, is central country, and they really had a sense of their own centrality. And in the middle of the 19th century, that whole sense of national self was sort of systematically deconstructed first by the Opium Wars, then by the rise of Japan and. Uh, China had a series of wars with Japan in the late 19th century. And then, of course, going into World War II, Japan invaded and occupied large parts of the country. And, and this is what the Chinese kind of remember back as the century of humiliation, which is the sort of total gestalt shift in the way that China thought of itself um, from being very central to being very marginal, from being very strong to being very weak. And, and I do think that that, that concept has... Um, 
continues to exert uh, great influence on Chinese policy behavior, on China's worldview, its sense of where it is in the world, because China right now is in this place where it is an emerging, you know, economic superpower. It's certainly a rising great power. Uh, but also there's a kind of sense of fragility and uh, a sense that China maybe doesn't yet uh, have the status that it deserves in the international system. So I, I think that there's a, a sense of China still playing catch up. And, and I think for China's leaders today, um, one of the primary arenas when they think about you know, how China is going to catch up and eventually supersede the United States or the West is in terms of its economic power. And the economic power just isn't just in terms of GDP. I think that China's leaders are fully aware that GDP is not an adequate measure of overall economic power. And they really, they understand that China needs to be at the world technological frontier. So a lot of what China's done over the past 20 years is uh, try to use various kinds of industrial policies um, to catapult the Chinese economy from being one based in you know low cost export manufacturing to increasingly one grounded not only in domestic consumption, but also in very advanced manufacturing. Um, so I would say the first place to begin is, you know, I think it does make sense to go back to the 19th century to get this sense of the um, the legacy of this sort of century of humiliation. But I, I think probably, you know, a more proximate place to begin would be, you know, well, 1972, that's when Nixon goes to China and we have the U.S. and China begin their rapprochement. And at that point, the relationship is purely strategic because China still hasn't opened up yet. Um, it's still a very closed economy. Uh, Mao is still in power. But that is the kind of beginning of this process that then leads to the 70s, 80s, and 90s into you know, what we now know of kind of the story of post-war modern China um, you know, emerging as the next kind of great economic superpower. Well, I kind of want to stop you there and ask, so I... I had somebody on the podcast recently, my my friend Farzam, who's in a he's an Iranian political analyst. He actually worked in Rouhani's office for a while. And he sort of one of the things he talked about to the listeners was you have to understand that Iran liked the United States, that the United States was a natural balance to the British Empire and to the Russian czars and to all and to the French and all these power, the Ottomans, the, the, all these powers that were messing around in what was Iran's idea of its country, of its sphere of influence, the United States was actually a model for resisting that. It was a counterweight to all that. And what happens in the 50s, 50s 60s, and 70s is that all that change changes because of how the United States intervenes in Iranian domestic political affairs. Um, is there a similar thing with China? I mean, you sort of talked about how you know 1972 is when Nixon goes to China and resets the whole relationship. But for the 20 years before that, I mean, China and the United States are flat out enemies. The Korean War is really a war between the United States and China when you get down to it. Um, is there any kind of historical memory of a positive role the United States is playing? Or is the United States just one among a number of countries that took advantage of China when it was weak and when it was marginalized? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, no, I think that there, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to summarize because it's a, it's it's so complicated. And I would say that I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right to point out that the Korean War is actually, I mean, it's the first Sino-American War is the way we ought to really think about it, because the vast majority of the forces on the North Korean side were actually Chinese forces. Um, and the, the majority of the, I think, really hard battlefield fighting was between the U.S. and the Chinese forces. Um, and that definitely does, I think, uh, 
make a mark on the way that the Chinese government over the course of the next couple of decades, so in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, is thinking about the U.S. But I think there's uh, a slightly different factor that maybe isn't present in the U.S.-Iranian relationship. Well, one is that the U.S. doesn't actually intervene in China. So there isn't the same sense of like quite the same level of vulnerability to the U.S. I think that there is maybe in the Iranian case. Well, they're, 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 they don't they don't like help out with a coup d'état, but you could say right. that U.S. support of Chiang Kai-shek during kind of the 1930s, 1940s, does that not qualify as kind of the same level of interference it, for them? It, it does. It does. I mean, I don't know if it's the same level of interference. What I was going to say, though, is that I think a key difference there is that China's also throughout this time engaged in this very unstable and uncomfortable partnership with the Soviet Union. So actually, throughout much of the 50s and 60s, China is more worried about the Soviet Union than it is about the U.S. I mean, it's worried about both of them. And a a lot of its rhetoric is directed towards the U.S. because at least until the mid-1960s, you know, China and the Soviet Union still are technically allies, but but the relationship was uh, rough almost from the get-go. And, you know, they actually have long-running territorial disputes with the Soviet Union that do erupt. and you actually see fighting between uh, Chinese and Soviet forces along the, the border with Russia. Um, so I, I think that there is a sense in which, you know, the U.S. is kind of, you know, throughout this period for propaganda purposes and very real and, on, you know, for on a very real level, it is kind of the bogeyman in the sense that it, it represents kind of the imperialist powers, the capitalist imperialist powers. Um, but I, I don't know that that sinks very, very deeply into kind of the Chinese consciousness because China's also at the same time navigating this also very complex and in some ways more combustible relationship with the Soviet Union, which is all to say that I think that, you know, it, it's actually, it seems really shocking. I think that in 1972, you suddenly had this rapprochement between Nixon and Mao, but I think understood in context of the Sino-Soviet relationship, it begins to make a lot more sense and is a lot less surprising because China was actually much more concerned about the Soviet Union than it was about the U.S. and saw aligning with the U.S. as a very effective way to balance against the USSR. Yeah, which is a perfect segue into sort of, so we've identified that 1972 Nixon and China moment as maybe one of the first key signposts. And I feel like the second signpost has to be um, China's accession to the World Trade Organization, the WTO, and obviously the the major of geopolitical event that happens between seventy two and between China becoming a member of the WTO is the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm, and yeah. one of the things I wanted to ask you about is sort of you know, does the whole premise of U.S. and China integrating their economies depend on the presence of that mutual enemy that they both feared, the Soviet Union, and sort of you know after the Soviet Union collapsed. The United States just keeps on going and China keeps on going, even though the strategic logic is gone? Or do you think that that played less of a role than maybe we appreciate? Like maybe these two economies were just going to intertwine anyway, and it was going to be irrespective of the strategic factor. So how, how do you think about um, sort of the, the existence of the Soviet Union from 72 until they joined the WTO in the early 90s? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think from the Chinese perspective, so I would say between you know 1972 and 2001 is these kind of goalposts. And 2001, as you noted, is when China finally acceded to the World Trade Organization. Between those two goalposts, I think key dates from the Chinese perspective are 1979, actually, which is uh, the year that Deng Xiaoping, who took over after Mao, 
um, or basically emerge as the next supreme leader after Mao, that's the year that Deng Xiaoping launches what we know as reform and opening. So that was the beginning of China's economic opening process. And it was a very similar move to uh, perestroika and glasnost in the USSR. The difference being that whereas perestroika and glasnost in the Soviet Union was both economic and a certain amount of political opening, Deng, I think, very wisely uh, opted for economic opening without uh, sort of concomitant political opening. So that's a that's a real turning point in Chinese policy. And I think it also begins to change the U.S.-China relationship, or at least the way that China sees its relationship with the U.S., because suddenly China's opening up economically and it realizes how poor it is, how backwards it is, and how much it needs investment from the rest of the world and trade with the rest of the world. So with that, I think China begins to think about the potentiality of its relationship with the U.S., not just in strategic terms, but in just kind of raw economic terms, which are ultimately strategic in the sense that Deng recognizes that for China to, to get where it wants to be 30, 40 years down the line, it's going to need to rely on trade investment and support of the sole superpower in the system now um, in order to do that. So 1979 is, is a turning point. And then we have a decade of, of you know, in the 1980s where China is opening up, but you don't see a real flood of foreign investment into China yet. You don't see a real flood of exports coming out of China. Um, it's still kind of mostly sort of indigenously driven, like low-level economic activity. And then, yeah, I think the next big turning point is 1992. And 1992 matters for China for a couple of reasons. One is because obviously prior to that, we have 1989. So the Tiananmen incident, that kind of brings to an end the first decade of China's economic opening. And with Tiananmen, China suddenly becomes a global outcast again and closes back in on itself for a few years. And it's in 1992 then that you have both the formal, you know, final fall of the Soviet Union and also this event in China uh, known as Deng Xiaoping's Southern Tour. This is when Deng goes to Guangdong province, Shenzhen, and basically says to the Chinese people, you know, we need to double down on reform and opening. We need to throw ourselves wholeheartedly into this. And it's really with that moment that you have, you know, it's kind of the confluence of the fall of the Soviet Union and China deciding to double down on economic reform and opening that then sets the stage for the next sort of phase in this process. And I think what you have there is, you know, as we know from sort of Francis Fukuyama, the end of history, there's a sense coming out of the Cold War in the U.S. that well, geopolitics is done. And now it's just about opening markets and liberalization. And this is where in the US, you get this hypothesis around engagement. It's the idea that if we just engage with China, China will necessarily inevitably liberalize. And that becomes the motivation for the US to start working with China to get China to join the WTO. And from China's perspective, this is absolutely welcome. I mean, China, again, wants export markets. It wants foreign investment. Um, it's doubling down now on building an export capacity so that it can kind of reproduce, you know, the Japanese and South Korean miracles from the previous decades. And that's what then leads us into WTO accession. So, I mean, I think at that point, there is, I think, for a period of time, an understanding that the relationship is really win-win, um, that this isn't about geopolitical competition. I don't think the U.S. at this point sees China quite yet as a geopolitical competitor. Um though they are very concerned with making sure that China cooperates and plays by the global trade rules. Um, but, you know, there's a sense of moving towards uh, 
some other kind of relationship with the idea from the U.S. perspective that maybe this will be the path towards liberalization for China in the long run. Yeah, there's also, I mean, I can't explain this. Maybe you can. There's also something that happens in those 20 years between 72 and 92, where the United States just gets really uncomfortable if it's not the undisputed power. If you go back and read Nixon's speeches or listen to the things that he was saying, he had already accepted a world that was multipolar. He accepted a world where the United States was not going to be the most powerful country in the world and where it had to have strategic relationships, pragmatic relationships with a number of powerful countries that weren't necessarily equal to the United States in every sense, but that that was part of his worldview. And by 92, I don't know if that's just because of the first Gulf War. I don't know if it's because of the you know, emerging victorious out of the Cold War, but you can already hear the rhetoric changing in the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, 9-11 gets thrown in there too, where suddenly there's this, it's so important to the United States that it is the sole superpower and that it gets to define the end of history and that it gets to make all the rules and everybody's going to follow them because they, you know, spent the money and the blood in order to defeat the Soviet Union. And I wonder if, if that has something to do about the hardening of kind of you, the U.S. vision of China, but it, it also goes to something we were talking about before we hit the record button, which is, you know, how much of this was by design for the United States, and how much of this was just, you know, the U.S. economic system had this once in a lifetime opportunity with China, and it was great for the multinational corporations to go in and open China up and to take advantage of it, and then you get the Fukuyamas coming in and, you know, justifying it ideologically, but the real move there is kind of like you say. The 80s, not a lot is coming in, but by the early 90s, it becomes clear that it's an economic opportunity. Uh, the U.S. multinationals move in and they swoop in and then like ideology and policy and politics all sort of has to has to catch up and start helping those multinational companies, I guess, solidify their gains in China. So how do you respond to that kind of collection of thoughts? I don't know if I summed yeah, it up. Yeah, yeah, no, right. no. I, I think that makes total sense. I mean, I, I think... Uh, you know, in political science, we tend to say things like this are overdetermined, which means that there are just, I mean, events like these have multiple causes. And so it's its really difficult to kind of untang, untangle, like what was the more important cause among the range of, of you know, kind of mm -hmm. coinciding causes. And, and I think this is just a classic example of that, where, I mean, there is a very real sense in which, you know, okay, I would say on one level, uh, I think that there is a change in beliefs um, at the level of, you know, yeah, how American political leaders are thinking about their country, how they approach questions of foreign policy. And I think it very much is the case that Nixon and I think presidents prior to Nixon, just as a function of the Cold War, were basically realist. I think that they they didn't have necessarily particularly idealistic ideas about what America was or could be or what American power could be used for. I think that they understood themselves as engaged in sort of classic geopolitical competition for power and influence. And, and I think Nixon thought very much accordingly. And that's why it wasn't that difficult for the Nixon administration to reach out to China in the first place. I mean, at first, that seems kind of crazy that, you know, the U.S., which is uh, the you know primary defender of liberal democracy in the Cold War, would quietly form an alliance with the second most powerful state in the Soviet, broader Soviet sphere of influence. And yet it happens because basically Nixon and Mao, I think, for their in their own ways, were actually not necessarily that committed to sort of ideological purity in this sense. So I think there was a sense in which American leaders were basically realist for most of the Cold War. And then exiting the Cold War, you know, maybe it's because suddenly the U.S. loses that um, 
you know, other pole against which it's balancing. There are a variety of things. And I think that there, you know, there's a, a shift is happening at the level of beliefs too in American leaders. They just begin to be filled with a sense that they can do so much more than they could have before. Um, and I think that that's a genuine sense. I mean, I think there really was a belief that coming out of the Cold War, like the great ideological struggles of the 20th century were done. And now we have finally found that liberal democracy paired with capitalism is basically the best of all possible ways of organizing society. And now the goal for the U.S. is to, by whatever means uh, you know, necessary, to spread those beliefs around the world. Now, under the sort of neoconservatives and the Bush administration, this becomes you know, through military force, if necessary. But I think for the liberal Democrats, liberal internationalists like the Clinton administration, you know, they were pursuing very similar goals, just maybe with less of a focus on military power. But I do think we see a, a, an actual ideological shift towards a sense that if we just integrate more and we open up and we and we tear down the walls to trade and investment, that you know this will uh, you know rising tide lifts all boats. Um, and you know what we're going to end up doing is lowering costs for consumers. We're going to generate prosperity, basically. Um, and I think that that's a very real sense. Of course, the background to that is, and this is where it's difficult to disentangle is that all of this also coincides with a loosening of controls on capital flows globally. So with the end of the Bretton Woods mm-hmm. system, suddenly you move into a world where you know, the US leads the way and other countries begin to follow, but capital is moving around the world in ways that it hadn't for 30, 40 years since the end of, the cult, since the end of, the, of World War II. And you know, then we're in a world where suddenly you have these multinational corporations, which previously hadn't actually been multinational corporations because under the Bretton Woods systems, there were pretty high capital control. So they weren't able to move their capital overseas as easily. When those come down, you know, they realize that actually they can gain a lot by shifting production to uh, countries or places with lower costs, with other kinds of access to resources, et cetera, that they can't get in their home countries. And so these multinational corporations have a powerful vested interest in this process of integration and expanding markets. And it just is the case that that goes hand in hand with, I think, on the other hand, among policymakers, this genuine commitment to integration. And I think in the Chinese case, uh, it's sort of a, it's a perfect storm in a sense that China just happens to be a country that has a government that is willing and capable to invest every resource it has into building the infrastructure necessary to erect you know, the world's single largest integrated supply chain. And and this coincide this suits the interests of the MNCs, uh, suits the interests of the policymakers who are receiving campaign contributions from the MNCs and also believe in this genuinely. And this is kind of how we get like the heady days of 1990s and early 2000s globalization. It's so ironic, though, because I mean, I know you're calling them realist from sort of a policy point of view, but it's so ironic to me that you know all of this happens because, like you said, the United States decides that. an alliance or some kind of, not an alliance, but a pragmatic understanding with China is going to help the United States in its Cold War, in its kind of existential battle with the Soviet Union. And I say it's ironic, though, because when you look at the broad scope of U.S. history, excepting kind of the very early years, like, you know, 1776, 1812, China's really the first and only, you know, declared rival that the United States has ever had that can outproduce the United States. That economically, militarily, in terms of potential, has more than the United States. The Soviet Union was very powerful, 
very scary, had nuclear weapons. It couldn't hope to compete with the United States economically. Uh, Germany and Japan in World War II, not even together, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't compete with the United States when the United States decided that nationally it was going to go do something and it was going to unite all of its resources around that. Same with World War I. And it's it's just odd to me that, you know, it was the realists, the ones who were thinking so coldly and so pragmatically about it, who decided to open up this relationship with China without sort of seeing that, you know, down the road. China was a real potential challenger to all the ways it was. It was basically a version of the United States that could be, if properly harnessed, more productive, more unified, had greater resources. You know, all those other things. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and and I mean, my the only way I can answer that is I I don't know, but I think that probably from the perspective of cold warriors like Nixon and Kissinger in the early nineteen seventies, I think they just weren't thinking on that time frame. I, I think they were not thinking about what China could become. Because think about it, that was 50 years ago. I don't think that they were thinking what China might be 50 years from now. And it's really only been in the last, I mean, decade, honestly, that I think China has has truly emerged as a power that can, you know, compete with the United States uh, in a kind of you know, hold of country way. So I, I don't think they were thinking on that level at that time. I mean, it's possible they were, but but really, I think they had more proximate goals, which was countering the Soviet Union. And of course, in the 1970s, they had very limited information about the actual economic capabilities and potential of the Soviet Union. I think that people thought the Soviet Union was much more powerful and also had a much greater capacity for technological innovation than it actually did. We later found out in the 1980s that it lacked that capacity and that, that, that failure was intimately related with its political institutions. But I think at the time, they weren't thinking in those terms. And I think by the time you get to the 1990s, and I think that kind of realist mindset has been replaced by, you know, I, I think we can call kind of a liberal internationalist um, worldview. I think then those are uh, leaders, I'm talking about the Clinton administration primarily, but to some extent, the Bush administration. I think that these were leaders who had a very strong belief that regime type mattered. That it's not just about power, but it's about the kind of domestic institutions in a country. And this is where I think the engagement hypothesis comes from. It's this idea that, you know, we have some sense that if, and, and, and it really is the case. I mean, this is kind of uh, an empirical finding in political science is that democracies very rarely, uh, if ever, go to war with each other. And so there's this kind of sense that democracies somehow have found a separate peace with each other. And democracies are, are no less warlike than non-democracies when it comes to fighting with non-democracies, but they don't really fight other democracies. So then there's this idea of, well, how do we get China to become a democracy? And at the time, the kind of going belief was that if we encourage economic integration, that will, you know, in the long run, that will help to build a middle class in China. And we know from kind of early 1950s sociological theories that one of the key pillars of a strong and stable democracy is a thriving middle class. And eventually that middle class will demand not only greater economic rights from the government, but also greater political rights. So we, I think that there was a theory that if we engage with China now, and we do it in a way that you know, by making China join the WTO, China is complying by rules, we can monitor their behavior, we can ensure that they're being good faith players, good faith, good faith participants in the international system, then eventually, you know, 20 years down the line, which would be about today, uh, there will be a middle class of 500, 500 million people in China, and these people won't be satisfied just with higher incomes. They'll want more from their government. 
And eventually that's going to get us a democracy. And at that point, it doesn't matter if China is as or more powerful than the US. This is the theory. It doesn't matter what China's power is. If it's a democracy, then we can find a way to work together in the same way that you know Europe obviously doesn't have sort of military power to compete with the US, but Europe has a great deal of economic power to the extent that it's united. But I think there's a sense of, I and mean, we don't think of Europe or European countries as threats to American interests and power. And part of that is because we recognize them as democracies and there's a sense of shared identity there. So I think there was a belief that that was going to happen with China and it didn't. And that I think is the great puzzle and the thing to, you know, that will determine, I think, the next phase of the US-China relationship. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple things to say to that. The first is that, and we, I don't want to get too far down a rabbit hole of US politics, but, um, you know, Nixon was a Republican um, and it's it's so ironic that probably the forces in American politics that at the time would have been suspicious of China were actually the Democrats. And that was in part because they had been in power. They had gone through the Korean War. They had been the ones who presided over the Vietnam War. And China played an ambiguous role from the U.S. perspective in that war, too. Um, so kind of ironic that it was you know the Republicans who who wanted pragmatic engagement with China, whereas the Democrats had kind of basically hanged themselves on this idea that China was going to be a major enemy. And now you fast forward at 50 years, it's the Trump administration who has sort of taken the Republican Party hostage in that way. And he's the one being tough on China, wanting to really draw that line, whereas the, the Democrats are a little more open about it. It's just how, how those ideologies are malleable is always interesting to me. But yeah, it, it also... I, I would oh, say one thing, though. I mean, I, I do think that there's more consensus now in the US than... I mean, there there is probably a partisan angle to it, but I think that there's, there's more consensus than... Uh, we might have expected, I think, that that the U.S. faces what we could call a strategic threat in China. I think the difference is more in how we come, how we approach that strategic threat, whether we, you mm -hmm. know, how we engage in competition. But no, but but point taken. I mean, I, I think that you know, U.S. politics, um, you know, going back to Johnson, I think, really, and and you know, the, with civil rights and the way that that just changed the demographic politics of the country, I, I think. It underscores, yes, that party affiliation and party ideology, especially when it comes to foreign policy, where Americans really don't have very clear set preferences, um, is highly malleable. Well, yeah. And I mean, to that point, it's one of the frightening things to me about American politics is that the only thing that the two parties seem to seem to be able to agree on right now is that China is bad. Um, and if that were a truism, if that was actually accurate, I, I think that would make me less comfortable. But I think that there is this construction of China as the whipping boy for, for all of U.S. problems in a way that doesn't really get down to what's actually kind of going on there. But it also goes to the point that you were making about you know, integration and the idea that eventually economically, you know, China would become wealthy enough that it would become a democracy and it would become a regime that the United States appreciated. And that also seems to me a tragic assumption because um, you know, we didn't necessarily have the data at the time to work with in terms of democracies, but we already knew economic integration was not a preventative for war. If you go back and read, you know, the analysis of the top political science or the top history or the top social science professionals right before World War One, they're very smart people making the argument that the world is simply too economically integrated. There is simply too much interest in, in this supply chain working the way that it's working right now for anybody to go to war against each other. And the idea that you know, the United States is almost um, replicating that misassumption, which the British Empire made at the time in terms of continental Europe, there, there's sort of a, I don't know, the, the, there's a tragic element to that to me in, in the long term.
I think that's true. I mean, I, I would qualify that somewhat just that I, I think that there is, I mean, yeah, I think that if we, you know, from a kind of 30,000 foot perspective, we can see, and I think that the example of, of the years leading to World War One is very instructive because it means that interdependence does not prevent war, as you said, that globalization is not a panacea. Um, I think that's very true. And there are some ways in which maybe the the extent, the depth of integration prior to World War One actually precipitated conflict because it created certain kinds of vulnerabilities between countries um, that might not have existed otherwise. I think there's a little bit of a different dynamic, and it'll be curious to see how this plays out. I really hope it doesn't lead to war, but it'll be curious to see how it plays out in the coming years. And and the difference is that in the lead up to World War One, although the major countries involved in World War I were deeply integrated when it came to trade. This was primarily arm's length trade. So they were manufacturing domestically and they were selling to each other. And that's a certain kind of trade that there's still a great deal of in the world. So the U.S. manufactures a lot and then we export it to China. China manufactures a lot and exports it to the U.S. But I think a key difference is that now we live in a world of integrated supply chains. And what I mean by this is that, you know, as Obviously, you're familiar. I mean, you take a, a a good like you know the classic one people cite is like the Apple i the iPod or now the iPhone, um, which you know the the whole supply chain of the the production of an iPhone probably involves I don't know 15 countries and mm-hmm. some of the creative work is done in the U.S. Other work is done in Taiwan. You know, maybe the semiconductors are manufactured in Taiwan. Uh, other parts, you know, advanced machinery is done in Japan. You know, maybe some of some of it's done in Thailand. And then finally, it's like assembled in China and it's assembled at like three or four different places in China. And what this basically means is that, you know, arguably the world is integrated, not just more today, but in a different way today, which is that uh, it's not, you know, and that this underscores, I think, the role of these multinational corporations is that, you know, we in 1912, we didn't really have, with the exception of the Rothschilds, basically, like some of the big banks, we didn't have multinational corporations in the same way that we do now, whereas you, know, you have companies that arguably uh, exert a great deal of influence over certain aspects of the foreign policy process in a country like the U.S. and in China, um, and that are maybe based in the U.S., but have extensive operations in China and 15 other countries. And you know, the idea is that they are going to lose uh, a great deal if these countries go into conflict. You know, I mean, this is the whole kind of fear of decoupling between these two two economies is that is that you're, you know, these sinews of the global economy that have held things together and that make it integrated in a very different kind of way than it was before uh, would be disrupted. So now I don't know if that's going to have a palliative effect on the situation. It may not at all. And I think one of the concerns coming out of the coronavirus episode is that we're going to see kind of more incentive to move towards autarky on every, you know, on everyone's part, because we've now recognized how risky it is to be as deeply integrated as we are in the ways that we are. I couldn't help but think when you brought up the Rothschilds that the the worldwide Zionist conspiracy is the first multinational company, I guess, because they were the only ones that could uh, control the world. That's okay. I can make that joke, y'all. Don't, don't, uh, it's fine. He didn't say it. Um, Okay. But so, all right. So we're good. We got a little off track, but I think that was helpful. So now let's kind of get into where your wheelhouse is, which is um, you're thinking about uh, why and how China became protectionist in its relationship specifically with the United States. What is the watershed moment? What is the year or the event or the leadership transition, whatever it is? What is the moment where it's no longer good for China to be in this sort of 
globalized, everything is fine environment and where they start having to exert protectionism? Or is it even not that simple? Is it that it was never really like that? It just seemed like that on the surface, but China was always protecting itself in some ways. And as some things got more protected, some things got less protective and it's a process. Yeah. Um, another great question. So I, I would say, I mean, I think there are the two kind of headline uh uh, watershed moments. Um, and then there's a third watershed that I think in some ways is more important, but gets almost no attention. But we'll talk about the two headline watershed moments first, watershed moments first, and then we'll get to the third one. So the two headlines, as we, you know, we were discussing before, the first is WTO accession. So 2001, China joins the WTO. And this is fall, I mean, this follows a, you know, 13 year process of negotiations. First, China tries to join the GATT, which is the predecessor to the WTO. And the U.S. basically is the main per, the main actor rebuffing Chinese efforts to join the GATT. Um, and then and then in the mid 1990s, China you know again signals it wants to join the WTO. WTO is formed in 1995, and the U.S. agrees. But basically, the U.S. is the gatekeeper here. Um, they are the ones that you know it's the the single most important bilateral relationship for China. And because the U.S. exerts a great deal of influence in the WTO in general, you know the U.S. is the one that sets the standards for you know what what does China have to agree to in order to enter the WTO? And the negotiations are absolutely grueling for China. I mean, China makes tremendous concessions to the US, opening up, you know, agreeing to reductions in tariffs, agreeing to uh, removing all kinds of other sort of like de facto barriers to trade and investment integration. I mean, China really kind of goes to the table and they, they make a lot of pretty deep concessions. And that's out of an understanding that China China needs this integration. They need the stability that WTO is going to give them because that's what will give investors the confidence to come in and invest there and uh, also give consumers and other countries the confidence to buy Chinese exports. So WTO finally happens. China has, has made some pretty deep cuts to allow it to go forward. And basically 2001, I mean, that is economically, that is the inflection point for China. I mean, if you look at the data, it's just astonishing. I mean, China's growing steadily throughout the 1990s. But after 2001, there's just, I mean, it's really incredible. China just goes through the roof. I mean, it's imports of key commodities, it's exports, et cetera. That is when China really enters uh, or steps up to the stage of kind of global economic powerhouses. And then I would say the next turning point, the kind of marquee turning points is the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009. Mm. And I won't go into details about, you know, this, I think it, it, it has the effect of making China feel both much more powerful and much more confident and simultaneously much more, much less secure in the viability of its own economic model. Now, we won't go into details about what that is, just to say that China comes out of this on the one hand, realizing that, you know, its own domestic economic model needs to change fundamentally or things are, are not going to be good. Um, but also, you know, China looks out at the rest of the world, and in particular the U.S., and sees that suddenly this kind of uh, shining beacon of uh, economic and technological power has just collapsed before everyone's eyes, and it was a house of cards. And China, I think at that point, begins to sense that uh, it has a different kind of role to play in the global system, and it needs to step up, and it needs to... Um, you know, be granted the status that it actually deserves in the international system. And I think also has much less confidence after that moment that the U.S. model, liberal democracy tied to capitalism, is actually the model of the future. Hmm. So those are two major turning points. But I would go back to, I think, a 
a, a date that is also very significant, but never noted in the Western press and in most sort of you know English language treatments of this, which is 2004. And what happens in 2004 is that China State Council, which is like the cabinet essentially, publishes a shift in, in investment policy. Basically, the Chinese central government says, we're no longer going to directly control domestic investment. We're going to devolve that. We're going to let private investment come in. But we're also going to let local governments, et cetera, kind of take control of the domestic investment process. And what we see after that is the Chinese government says, okay, although we've devolved formal control over investment uh, to lower levels of administration, local governments, et cetera, we are going to then step in and try to guide the investment process through industrial policies. So after 2004, we have, you know, and I talk about this in my dissertation, is the, the kind of re-elevation of these big cross-national or cross-sectoral national industrial policies, where this is the Chinese government saying, you know, here are the 20 industries that are going to guide the economy in the next 20 years. And we want, you know, we are signaling to everyone that these are the industries we want you to invest in. This is where we're going to develop indigenous capacity, indigenous innovative capacity. And I think this is the beginning of kind of a moment where China, I think the Chinese leadership understands that uh, being economically powerful isn't just about having a big GDP. Being economically powerful is about having very advanced manufacturing capacity. Uh, it's about being at the world technological frontier. And they realize that they're very far from that. And they have an opportunity and a mandate to use whatever kind of policy tools they can to catapult China to that world technological frontier. And I think it's at that moment that you begin to see China relating differently to this idea of integration and openness. Because what they realize is that if they just open their economy up, then these Western multinationals, which are much more productive, much more efficient than their domestic than the domestic Chinese companies are going to enter the Chinese market and take over. And they're going to dominate that market because they are so much more efficient, so much more productive, so much more advanced. And so this is where this idea emerges of China wants to cultivate its own national champions. But to do that, it has to find ways of keeping Western competition out or ensuring that when that Western investment comes in, that American investment comes in, that it does so on Chinese terms. So it does so through things like joint ventures where China can force technology transfer, uh, uh, or it does so in areas where China requires local data storage, and that gives you know kind of very systematic benefits to the domestic Chinese competitors. Is it fair to say that the United States does not have a similar realization at the policy or strategic level until 2016? Or do you think that that isn't giving enough credit to either the Bush or the Obama administrations? Um. I, I would say, you know, I think 2016 is probably a, it's a turning point in, in American thinking on this, but I, I think the, I think that it begins earlier than that. I, I'm not sure about the Bush administration. I think throughout the Bush administration, the U.S. is still kind of riding the heady waves of, you know, I mean, we're just at the top of the world economically. And, and we've come out of, I mean, this is, you know, Facebook and Google and Silicon Valley is taking off and it's just, is kind of inconceivable that the that anywhere else in the world is going to really be able to compete with us in these industries that so clearly are going to shape the next 20 30 years of the global economy. So I think we're still in a in a, a phase of great confidence despite the financial crisis. I think a certain amount of underlying confidence 
in the potential of the American economy. I think with the Obama administration, there is a growing sense that China could catch up and it could catch up a lot more quickly than we thought before. Um, and that maybe we need to also find ways of using policy, not just relying on the market, but using policy to nudge the American economy to be more competitive with China and also be a bit more cautious about um, you know, how, you know, how we let Chinese firms invest in the U.S. and what they, when they come to the U.S., what kinds of technologies they're getting access to, um, and also maybe begin to press harder on China to actually meet its earlier WTO compliant, uh, uh, WTO agreements, commitments. Um, but I do think 2016 is a turning point, And I think, you know, we see with the, it was in 2016, the Trump administration, or it was in 2017, publishes the Section 301 investigation. Um, which outlines the justifications for the decision to escalate trade tensions with China. And if you look at the Section 301 investigation, it's not about trade. I mean, even though what we have is a trade war, the Section 301 investigation is primarily about Chinese violations of intellectual property rights. It's about technology transfer. So it's about things that affect American companies with operations in China, not just American companies that trade with China. And so it's at that point that I think the U.S. does really kick it into high gear, that we've, we've moved to a place where, um, well, we've just realized that, that China will uh, be very adept at complying with the letter of its agreements, but has found ways, arguably, you know, legitimately, from the Chinese government's perspective, uh, for not complying, creatively not complying with the spirit of its agreements on things like intellectual property rights protections. Yeah, it's one of those amazing things when when it's in China's interest to play up the idea that it can do something in a really unified, cohesive way. Uh, you know, the Chinese government is an example of wonderful control. And then when you start getting into trade deals or this or reforms or this, that or the other thing, it's all well, it's a huge country and there's a billion people and the, the government at the top can say one thing, but in practice, you know, you can't expect the government to regulate things for a billion people. That seems to me like one of the the fallbacks that they they always go to. But the one of the things that's in what you're saying, I think, and it's one of the in, most interesting things you said to me before we hit record here was that um, it's almost that the United States, even under the Trump administration, even with the tariffs and the Section 301 and, and the strategic rival, it seems like what the United States wants is actually more integration. It wants more access to the Chinese market, where it seems to me that China's thinking very differently. It doesn't necessarily want access to the US market. It wants to protect itself and then build its own economic sphere of influence. Is that a fair distinction or do you think that also is changing? No, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that the, you know, the, the basic issue here, and I think a very important source of leverage for China in this process is that uh, it has by far the world's largest consumer market. And for these American companies, uh, I mean, if they're going to have a future, uh, they need to be in that market, you know, in most industries. And I mean, it really is kind of a death sentence for them if they're not able to really fully penetrate the Chinese market. So I think that that is critical. And this goes to why, I mean, you see that, you know, one of the, in the phase one of the um, trade agreement that came out in, I guess this is now mid 2019, um, the phase one trade agreement, the, you know, I mean, obviously there was a thing about, you know, China committing to buy soybeans and things like that. But I think that the, actually like the, the one key concession that China made there 
was, and we'll see if this plays out, but the one key concession they made was to open the financial sector to uh, foreign banks, foreign financial institutions. And that, I mean, that has been an issue since the mid-1990s. That was one of the key things China agreed to when it joined the WTO was to open its, its domestic financial industry to foreign and especially American banking institutions. And they never really did. They kind of did, but then they implemented these you know, various kinds of disguised barriers, made it very difficult for foreign banks to actually set up shop there. And so they did come in this phase one agreement that, that came out in 2019. They did uh, say that they were going to begin to allow American banks to operate uh, unrestricted, you know, with, with fewer restrictions in China. And we'll see if that happens. But, but I think that this underscores that like the, the negotiations, I mean, trade was the instrument that's been used, trade, you know, tariff, punitive tariffs, that's the instrument that's been used, but the goal isn't to get China to lower its tariffs or something like that. The goal is to get China to remove the various things that have made it very hard for American businesses to do business in China. And this goes to the fact that whatever the U.S. government's ideological commitments or their beliefs about China, for these companies, China is an absolutely essential market. Um, especially when you think about you know big banks. I mean, the, this is you know you've got a billion customers there that are as of yet being untapped, and there are a billion customers of whom 700 million actually now have some capital that they could invest, you know? And, and so I think that's been a really key element that's driven this process. And I think, you know, if you look back at kind of the history of like these multinational corporations and their preferences over China, you know, they're, they're, where they fit into this process, I think there was a really clear sense in the 1990s and through the mid 2000s where they were a bulwark between the US and Chinese governments. So I think that the US government at different times has has wanted to be more uh, hawkish on China. And I think throughout the 2000s, these corporations were honestly, they were one of the major factors that were pushing for more cooperation between the two countries. But I think something happened uh, in the wake of the financial crisis, in the wake of the rise of industrial policy in China that I talked about before, where these American companies began to realize that they had reached the limits of their ability to penetrate the Chinese market. And when they realized that, they, they, I think they had a, a kind of preference shift. And they decided at that point that the goal or it, what suited them was not to try to promote cooperation between the U.S. and China, but to see if they could compel the U.S. government or encourage the U.S. government to use the policy tools at its hand uh, to coerce China into opening its market further. So yeah, I think that one of the goals is actually not really decoupling. I think that one of the underlying goals is trying to push for more thorough integration between the two economies. Yeah, you use the language of need, and I think it's right because a lot of companies plan their future strategies on be, being able to sell into the Chinese market. But I think it's less an issue of need and more an issue of companies just got used to the idea that it was going to be easy, that you were going to have one market and that was going to be able to, you know, you could run your supply chain through there, you could sell there, that was going to be everything. The hard work of actually building resilience in a supply chain or diversifying your customer base, you didn't have to do that anymore and you could make a lot of money doing it. And I think that the companies that um, that kind of did that, their capacity to imagine a different world, a more fractured world has atrophied. They don't remember what it was like to have to go to a bunch of different countries and to make sure that you had backups for everything in your supply chain because they just got used to how cheap it was to do stuff in China. And that's kind of, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but that's one of the brilliant things about how China has engineered itself because everybody is so dependent on them now. 
and people for, or you know the United States for a long time didn't really read that as a threat for a lot of different reasons and it's only now when that dependence is really there where they have that real leverage that suddenly companies and countries are waking up to the fact that oh okay like there's not going to be an easy solution here we're not just going to be able to sell to the Chinese market um, but one thing I did want to ask you, and I know you're not an India expert, but you sort of talked about, and I know how I would answer this, but I wonder how you would answer this. Um, it seems to it seems to sort of the casual observer that okay, you can't sell to the billion people in China. Why not just sell to the billion people in India? H- how do you think about the, what is your research about China and your understanding of China um, tell you about the capacity for U.S. companies to execute a shift like that to another country that is very poor that has a huge potential market? Yeah, um, I have to think about that for a minute. I mean, I, I think the, yeah, and again, yes, I should underscore that I am not an India expert. Um, so I, 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 I could be very wrong in this, but my, my basic sense is that uh, although I think India has a tremendous amount of potential as well, um, because there are, in fact, yes, a billion people there, a billion potential consumers, and India will become wealthier over the next 20 years. And I think that we are going to see, to some extent, diversification or companies trying to tap both of these markets. Um, so I think, I think to some extent, that's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet because India is still much poorer than China. Um, but I think there's another element here, which is just in, in China, you had... You know, to some extent, I think it was a it was a coherent strategy on the part of the Chinese government. To some extent, though, I think it was just a synergy. Uh, there was a, a kind of confluence of factors um, that partly depended on the fact that you had this government in China that was, you know, although yes, administration, as you pointed out, I mean, there there are times in which you know China will fall back on the idea that, you know, yes, of course, the government can plan long term, but actually, in implementation, things are very fragmented, and the local governments have all kinds of autonomy. But the reality is, nonetheless, the Chinese government is, uh, to some extent, uniquely capable, I think, of, of uh, planning for the long term in ways that will attract and build this sort of single integrated supply chain in a way that I think political institutions really matter here. And I'm, I don't know um, that India will be able to replicate, uh, I think, on the same scale that China had, you know, what China did in the 1990s. So I, I would say, you know, two things here that, that frame my understanding, and I'm really curious your thoughts on this, is, is just I think there's some kind of essential difference in political institutions that, that really matter um, for China's trajectory versus maybe India's potential going forward. And I think that the other factor that is related with that that just may delay the India kind of emergence uh, is the fact that it is still, um, I think, much poorer and I think has... You know, it's 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 an infrastructure story. I mean, China built the infrastructure. You know, if you build it, they will come. China built the infrastructure, and they came. And so, I think the question is: Will India be able to mobilize the resources and the political willpower um, to build it? I mean, I think you hit on the key example, right? Which is that India has known for decades what infrastructure it needs to build to become a global economic hub. It still hasn't built it. It hasn't built it because yeah. it can't. Yeah. It just—it's not the same thing. One of the questions I get most often with clients or with with listeners is, "What do you think is going to be the next China?" Like we know that China, the costs are rising and it's becoming—you know—the the global environment is becoming decoupled and it's harder to do business in China. But who's going to be the next China? And I always tell people there is no next China. 
and it's not India and it's not anybody else. You're going to have to go back to doing the hard work of actually selling into markets that your government has some kind of political relationship with or that you have some kind of personal political relationship with. If you're a if you're a US company or if you're a European company and you have a really strong political relationship with whoever, you know, in whatever Chinese province you need it or w- at whatever Chinese government level you need it, you're going to be fine. But don't think that you're going to get another China to emerge on the scene. I, I think one way to say this like very succinctly is just that China was incredibly unique. Like that doesn't happen all the time. Yeah. You don't get a people that unified who were that marginalized and poor, who have that kind of imperative to advance that quickly, who are just going to start doing things the way that China was doing. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a mistake to think that, um, that China's grow on trees around the world. It, it's a really historically unprecedented thing that happened. And if you look at most of the course of human history, you didn't have a massive economic booster shot like that. You yeah. mostly had fracturing and different spheres of influence and all these other things. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more strongly. I think, um, yeah, I mean, the Chinese situation, it, it, it yeah, it truly is, uh, it truly is unique. I don't think that that's an experiment that's going to repeat itself. Um, you know, maybe not for another century. I think that just conditions were such in China that uh, you got something that's going to be very, very difficult to reproduce. Um, I, th- I think there's also something about the historical experience, which is that China was just happened to be in a point in its political cycle that, I mean, the Qing dynasty was falling apart anyway. And certainly the, especially the British empire, but all the Western countries and Japan and Russia kind of pushed it over the edge. Um, India was also in a very difficult situation, but it wasn't the same sort of thing. Their experience wasn't a century of humiliation and warlords and invasions and all these other things. Their experience was basically being um, a colony of the British Empire and giving the British Empire an extra hundred years of its lease on life. And in the sense that Chinese decision makers, I think, fear that century of humiliation they fear when you know a president trump comes in and says no i want to sell to your market like get rid of your tariffs you need to do whatever i say that sets off alarm bells for them for india it, that's not necessarily what sets off the alarm bells what sets off the alarm bells is you want us to take down tariffs you want us to just kind of be an economic province or a colony of yours like we did that we have a non-aligned foreign policy for a region we have no problem with the chinese if they stay in the south china sea and we can stay in the indian ocean we want to trade with the Chinese. We have no dog in this fight. That's sort of the, the, the real MO of Indian foreign policy and Indian strategy, if you want. So I, I think there's this real misunderstanding, especially in U.S. policy circles, where they think they can just you know, peg India as a potential ally in this push against China. And I just don't think it's going to happen that way. I, I don't think the way India thinks about its history and thinks about its imperatives is going to allow it to to confront China in that particular way. I totally agree. And I, and I would just add two things. I mean, to underscore, again, going back to the role of historical memory, I think in shaping uh, the present moment in China and US-China relations is you know, just to think about the role of this concept of humiliation and overcoming that humiliation and how that influences Chinese behavior. I mean, the Chinese national anthem like the opening lines of the national anthem are stand up, stand up, chilai, chilai. Like that's the, and that really is this idea of like the, I mean, the 1949 revolution was about China standing up. 1978 was about China standing up. And now I think we're seeing, you know, under Xi Jinping, the great national rejuvenation is the sense of 
China now must stand up. And that's a very particular consciousness. And the second thing I would add is I think because it's a strategic relationship, it's not just China and what's happening there. And it's not just India, what's happening there. It's also what's happening in you know, the, the partner. And in this case, the partner is mm-hmm. the US basically, or we could say the West. And I think the Chinese situation was very unique because China was opening at this at the exact same moment at the end of the Cold War when American economic and policy elites had converged on a belief in unrestricted market integration, basically, that that was the path to American national power and influence, but also to global prosperity. And I think now uh, India will be, quote unquote, rising in a very different world, where I think partly because we realize that I think the, you know, that process of economic integration, you know, that yes, it generated a lot of winners, but it also created a lot of losers. Uh, and those losers were not just in developing countries, they were also in the US. And so I think now we're at a place where going forward in both on both the right and the left, I think political leaders are going to be and their constituencies are going to be much more skeptical of globalization. And so that raises real questions about you know the extent to which India is going to be able to benefit from the same kinds of forbearance and excitement and engagement that China did when it went through this process twenty years ago. Yeah, I just I just wrote an article that was uh, I don't know if they'll accept the title, but I, I said I called it "Globalization is Dead," um, and I don't mean by that that globalization is just going to end or reverts itself. It's not. I think the world is probably going to become more globalized within sort of coherent networks or frameworks where there's there's some sense where there's mutual interest or mutual familiarity, all those other things. I, I think to, to your point, the idea of globalization is dead yeah, and it's dead throughout the world. And people kind of understand, okay, like this actually wasn't good for my country or for my interests. I need, I need to actually use China as sort of a model of how a country engages with that system, but then builds its own sense of strength, its own sense of, as you said, yeah. the dream of national rejuvenation, yeah. you know, taking advantage of that. And then carving out a place in that world for yourself and moving out from there. And in that sense, I mean, um, you know, the, the regime in China, there are a lot of different problems with it. But I think one of the reasons that there's always been such a conflicted relationship between the United States and China is because both sides see something of themselves in the other. And mm-hmm. I think American observers kind of sympathize with, with this idea that, you know, they got marginalized, they were treated unfairly, they have this vision of social harmony and of social cohesiveness that the United States kind of admires in the same way that China admires that the United States has been able to build a functioning political system out of an attachment to liberalism and individual rights that it's never really been able to master. And ironically, you know, in, in time, in, in certain times, like that 72 to 92 or even 72 to 2004 period, that means that they can engage with each other on a really good level. But it also means at times where you're vying for global supremacy or where your interests aren't exactly aligned, the things that make those countries similar make the differences seem more personal and more visceral in a way that's hard to get over. Yeah, well said. I very much agree. All right, well, John, you've, you've given us a lot of your time. I'll get you out of here on this. I didn't ask you this before, but tell me, um, I always like to, to ask, um, Pot, and by the way, we only got through a small fraction of what we planned to get through. So you'll have to come back on and, and oh. talk to the listeners some more. Yeah, I look um, forward to it. But going back, let's say starting in 1900, who's your, who is the Chinese leader that you most admire uh, from 1900 to the present day and why? Wow. Um, 
I mean, we're talking political leaders here. Any leader, you can take that question wherever you want. Just who is who is kind of the 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 Chinese political figure, cultural figure, whatever it is. Who is the Chinese figure that sort of in the past hundred and twenty years uh, you admire, that you learn something from, or that sort of has has framed the way you see the world in a positive way? Yeah, that's that's a, a another great question. Um, I mean, I, I would say you know I want to give a shout out to Deng Xiaoping just because I think he's maybe the most important political leader or one of the most important political leaders of the 20th century. But my personal favorite is someone who's a bit less well-known, although I think in Chinese cultural circles, very famous, and that's uh, a man named Hu Shi. And Hu Shi was the leader of kind of the pragmatist faction in Beijing in the 1910s and 1920s. Um, And he was a major intellectual figure in what's known as the May 4th Movement, which is sort of the Chinese Enlightenment um, Hoosier actually did his undergrad at Cornell, which is both of our alma maters. Um, hail, all hail. And he, uh, yes, yeah, so he was a professor, professor at Beijing University. And he was kind of the main figure, you know, out of coming out of this May 4th movement in 1919, there was, that really framed the debate in China for the next 20 years around was China, you know, China, the, the Qing had collapsed. China had to revive itself, had to rebuild itself. Were they going to do it through reform or through revolution? Hushir was the reformist, uh, and Mao, along with other founding members of the Chinese Communist Party, vouched for revolution. And I think Hushir, uh, he's, I think, an interesting, um, he's interesting to consider from the perspective of, you know, what could China have been in a counterfactual world? What chi- What might have happened to China in a different world where it didn't pursue the path of revolution, which I think was in some ways necessary, uh, but also was extraordinarily destructive for the Chinese people. So I, I've always admired Hu Xi greatly. Um, he was a great intellectual and a major figure in Chinese 20th century history. And I think someone who uh, you know helps to remind us that history is full of contingencies. Um, it's very difficult to predict where things are going to go. And there are these critical junctures where things could have gone very, very differently. Um, And we should keep our eyes uh, peeled for those moments. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, If you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in, and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, You can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, We're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice-a-week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.